Thanks for that. <clears throat> I was informed that on the bottom of the screen there was a little picture of a shark. So this thing really isn't going away, is it? This, is, this one's here to stay. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope everyone's nice and comfortable at home. It was quite chilly up in the mountains where I left this morning, so hopefully you guys up in the mountains are all nicely rugged up. You've got your coffee ready to go. I think I'm going to miss that about doing church at home, just having the lounge and the coffee. It was, it's quite nice. I'm going to get you put your thinking caps on this morning. Um, our theme for this year is going deeper. And uh, I'm taking that as a challenge. Uh, I want to go deeper this morning in, in what we're going to talk about. So have your thinking caps on. If you haven't already got one, go and grab a coffee. You might need the caffeine. Um, but we'll see how we go with this. So something I've found in my life and what I've seen through you know, just my interaction with other Christians and with other people, what I've noticed is that more often than not, when things go wrong in our lives, it's because we've strayed away from God. Now, this isn't true in every circumstance. Sometimes things just go wrong that are out of our control. Take, for example, the situation in which we find ourselves. But I find that in a lot of cases, when, when things are happening, when things go wrong, whether it's in our finances or in our relationships or, or whatever that might be, very often it's come as a result of drifting away from God or, or forgetting who we are in God. And we see all this all the way through Scripture. Let's go right back to the garden. There you find Eve in conversation with the serpent and the serpent saying, you know, did God really say that? And starting to put doubts in her mind about who she was in God. Now, she could have fixed that problem really easily. She could have just gone to God and said, hey, God, there's this snake over here just talking all this rubbish about my relationship with you. Is it true? But she doesn't. She, she believes it. She buys into it. And as a result of that, everything changes. She, Adam and Eve begin to drift away from God and from the garden. And what we see happen after that is that humanity goes on this increasing drift. With every generation, things get worse. The next generation, we, we see murder until eventually God just says, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm over this whole thing. We're just going to hit reset on this whole humanity deal. Then we come to the people of Israel, and we've got this nation of, of Israel, God's chosen people who have been called out and given an identity. They are the chosen people of God and everything that that entailed. You are these people. But what do we find through their story? Time and time and time again, God having to send judges and prophets because continually they drifted away from God. They wandered away from who they were in God. And it was always the same message from the judges, from the prophets. It was always the same message. You've forgotten your God. You've forgotten Yahweh. Come back to him and all of this will go away. All of this, the diseases and the famines and the wars and the destruction, all of these things that are happening to you is happening because you've brought it on yourself. You've drifted away from God. Come forward into the Gospels. You find Jesus talking to his people, talking to the, particularly to the Pharisees. And he's saying, guys, look, you know, you're doing pretty well. You know, I mean, you haven't lost the law, you've, you're living according to the regulations, there's no doubt about that. He says, in fact, I noticed that you've added a few hundred to the regulations. But he says, you've forgotten this one thing, you've forgotten the point of them, which was love. It was about community, it wasn't about everything you've made it into being. 
Paul's got a similar message. We're going to talk a lot more about Paul momentarily, but you know, look at his letter to the Philippians for, for an example. I mean, the Philippians are a great church, don't get me wrong. There's, there's a lot of good things happening there. But this thing that Paul continually says, says to them all the way through, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice in the Lord. Why does he say that? Well, because the Philippians have allowed some divisions to come in. They've allowed some attitudes to come into their community. And Paul says the solution here is simple. Press into God. Press back into who you are in God. Rejoice in everything you have in God. And what you will find is that all of these issues just start to melt away. Let's go to Revelation. Jesus has a message for the seven churches of Asia Minor. And it's pretty much the same message. You guys are doing really well. There's a lot of things that I can commend to you. You, you, You're going pretty well. But I hold this against you. And in every case, it was you've forgotten something about yourself. You've lost your first love. You've forgotten the, the truth about who I am. And you've started to compromise. You've started to engage with the culture around you. And it's starting to affect the way that you are as a community. So all the way through scripture, we find this situation after situation where things start to go wrong for the people of God, and it can be attributed back to a drift, a forgetting who they are or forgetting who God is. Now, if you were sitting here, I'd be going, would you agree? And you'd all go, yeah, that's a really great point. So I'm going to trust that you're at home going, yeah, that's a really great point. So cool. All right. The thing about God and the thing about God's work in our lives is that God has given us everything that we need for this life. He is everything we need for this life. God has given us everything we need to live a fruitful and flourishing life in this existence. The problem is that we forget that. We forget what we have. It's a bit like with kids. I've got three kids and you as parents, would, you would have had this experience too, I'm sure, where the kids come out of their room and they, they walk past hundreds of toys and they come up to you and they say, Mom, Dad, we're bored. We've got nothing to do. And it's like, are you kidding? Have you seen how many toys you've got? Oh, no, no, we're bored. We're sick of all these toys. Because like they, they want you to, of course, go out and buy, buy them some more toys, which we would never do. But then we go, no, 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 hang on a second. Let's go back into your room and let's look at the toys that you've got. And then they come across this toy, go, oh my goodness, I forgot I had that, and they're all getting excited again. Actually, most of the time, they usually find cardboard tubes and just start hitting each other, and you're like, I should have just bought you that for your birthday, but anyway. But we forget who we are. And I think a lot of the time, we can attribute things going on back to that. Peter says like this, 2 Peter 1, he says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. We need to press deeper into God, but specifically we need to press deeper into the knowledge of God. And this is where I'm going to get you to put your thinking caps on. I want to look at this word knowledge. What does that mean? What what does scripture have to tell us about what it means to know God? And this really sort of obviously ties back into our theme of of going deeper. So the word we have there, knowledge, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, spelled G-N-O-S-I-S, G-N-O-S-S. 
part of me was just about to go G-O-G-G-O, -G -G -O, but I'm not going to go there. And so knowledge has its root in this Greek word gnosis. But what is, what is gnosis? What is this, this knowledge that the Greeks talk about? Well, it's knowledge that's gained through investigation. It's knowledge that's gained through inquiry, through dialogue, through experience, through objectively examining whatever it is to discover the truth of whatever that thing is. So I, I can suspect that something is true. I can suspect that something is, is a particular way, and I could be right about that. But knowledge, gnosis, is the assurance that what I believe about it is true through investigation, through proof, through inquiry. So that's the basic meaning of it, and that's how it would have been understood to anybody in the Greek world. It's, it, it's objectively, or understanding, or knowing, realizing what is objectively true. The difference, however, in the ancient world, particularly between Greeks and between Jews, was the question of what is truth? What is actually true? And so for the Greeks, their understanding of truth is that what is really true is the form behind the object. Let me explain this. If you've done philosophy, you know that I'm talking about Plato's theory of forms here. What this means is that when we look at our world and when we experience the physical realms of this world, the things that we can touch, taste, see, hear, experience, those things have a certain reality about them, but they're not actually the reality. What they are is more of a shadow, more of an expression of what is actually real, of what is actually true. So as an example, um, I am a man, as in I'm a male form of my species, which is human. So I have the characteristics of man. But if I was to go to a Greek philosopher and say, I'm a man, they would go, not really, no, you're not quite. You're, you're an expression of man, but you're not fully a man. Now, I could have 10 males lined up on this stage, and the Greek would say that all 10 of those are an expression of the true reality, which is man. So the man is the reality for which I am only an expression. I'll give you another example, because this really applies to everything in our existence. Take a rock. I can have a pebble, or I could have that great big rock I live on called the Blue Mountains. Both are rocks, very different in their size and weight, but what the Greek would say is that they are expressions of the reality that we call rock. Now, hopefully that's making sense. That's about the best that I can give you an explanation of this. But beyond that, what they would say is that this existence that we have, this life that we have, this, this cosmos that we're a part of, it's only an expression of a deeper truth, of a deeper reality. And what the Greeks called this was the logos. So the logos was the true reality that's at work behind everything else. It's unchanging, it's impersonal, it's the reason, it's the logic behind our existence behind our experience. And so our world can change around us, but the Logos never changes. The Logos is this fixed 
form that continues on and has done forever and will continue on forever. And so the goal then in the Greek worldview is to live in accordance with the Logos. Because if you live in accordance with the Logos, you live in accordance with truth, with what is real. And so our circumstances can change around us and that can freak us out. But if we know what the Logos is, then we're not bothered by those changes. We're not bothered by our circumstances because we recognize that this is only a shadow of this deeper reality, which is the Logos. At other times, the Greeks would call this God. Not a personal God, but a, a truth, a reality behind all of this existence. So the, the proper life, our purpose as humans, is to live in accordance with that Logos. Hopefully you've got those thinking caps on. All right. For the Jews, their idea of truth was somewhat similar. In the Jewish mindset, truth is what is fixed, what is permanent, what is absolutely unchanging. And for the Jews, it was particularly important in the context of the legal system, in the context of a court system. That is that what you seek to find out in court is what is true. What is the, the facts of this particular case? And so at that point, they would tend to agree with the general idea of gnosis. But when it came to the idea of God, that's when they start to diverge a little bit. For the Jews, God was true in that he was unchanging. God doesn't change his mind. In fact, Malachi, to Malachi, God says, I am God, I do not change. My word is fixed. My promises are fixed. Everything about me is absolutely unchanging. My will and my desire do not change. And so in that sense, God is truth in the way that the Greeks would understand and go, yeah, we can kind of relate to that. They would say, it kind of sounds a bit like our idea of the Logos. And the, Greeks, the, the Jews would say, you're right, we, we do have a lot of similarities there. In fact, John, when he writes his gospel, when John wrote his gospel, he was writing a bit later on in the first century. And it was at a time where the Christian message was becoming a bit more prominent, where the Christians were more Gentile, and a lot of them were coming from this kind of Greek understanding of what truth is and what God is. And what, the, what John was trying to do was to show the intellectual credibility of the Christian message. And so he starts his gospel by saying this, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And all the Greeks say, yeah, we can kind of get that. We understand this eternal nature, this eternal fixed truth of God. So they go, yeah, he's kind of like your idea of the Logos. But then in verse 14, John sort of flips the script and he says, but then the Logos became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. And all the Greek philosophers in the room just went, what are you smoking? You are out of your mind, John. How can the eternal, unchanging, impersonal Logos become a person? You are weird. You, there's something wrong with you guys. But what John is revealing is the fundamental difference between the Jewish idea of God and the Greek idea of God. Because in the Jewish idea of God, God is living and active. God is creative. 
And God isn't just some objective bystander looking on the creation and just going, well, I've got the ball rolling and uh, it's up to you guys now. No, God is actively at work in his creation all the time. And so when the Jews look around their world and they see change happening, they don't look at it as some sort of aberration away from this fixed logos. They look at their circumstances and say, what is God doing here? How is God at work in these situations? Now that's a radical notion away from anything the world had ever seen before. For them to know God wasn't just to know the truth of God in the sense of understanding scripture and understanding God's promises and his law, but it was to know God himself. It was the God who reveals himself to us to know that God personally. And so for the Jewish worldview, the purpose of us as humans, the purpose of us as created beings, isn't just to live in accordance with some unchanging logos. It's to live in accordance with the creative and loving will of God. And that's a radically, I mean, that is the thing that the Jews brought to the Greek world. What we take for granted now in our understanding of who God is, that was because this Jewish and Greek world, when Jerusalem met Athens and these worlds collided and God revealed himself to these people who would never even conceive that maybe God could actually be alive. All right, so that's the thinking part. Hopefully that, was, that went all right. But I want to come over to a couple of letters of Paul now. And I want to look at the way that he kind of unpacks this in his churches, this idea of knowing God. So Paul writes letters, we get that. What Paul does with his letters is that he takes a pretty standard letter format and kind of changes it around to his own ends. So the usual standard opening greetings from sender to recipient and so forth. But what is normal in an ancient letter is that you would offer a prayer for the recipient. And it always followed a very simple format. I pray to the gods for your health and your well-being. Right, it's kind of like the modern equivalent of thoughts and prayers. It doesn't actually mean anything, but you know, it's kind of a nice thing to say. Paul never does that. What's unique about Paul is that he never actually prays for his churches to have anything more than what they already have. See, when Paul's writing to his churches, he recognizes that there are issues going on. He wouldn't write to them if everything was perfect. He writes to them because there's something going on in the church. But he never says, I'm praying that God will give you something you don't already have in order to fix the problem. Because what Paul recognizes is that there are problems in the churches because you've forgotten who you are. And so when he prays, he says, I thank God for who you are because you've clearly forgotten that, which is why we got into this trouble in the first place. So he prays for the Ephesians, for the Ephesians as an example. He says this. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. You have knowledge of God. You have wisdom and revelation. I'm praying for more of that so that you would know God better. Now, he uses two important words here, wisdom and revelation. Very sort of a Greek Jewish ideas coming together in one. Um, we see this already in Corinthians. Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, that the 
Greeks seek wisdom, but the Jews seek signs. What they're seeking is proof, evidence, God manifested himself, demonstrating that this thing is true. This is why Jesus performed miracles. It wasn't just, here's a true statement, but here's the revelation of God proving the truth of the statement. So Paul says to his Jewish and Greek audience, I pray that you would have more of both. Firstly, I want you to have more wisdom, Sophia, which is not just knowledge or understanding, but it's living, is acting according to that understanding. See, for the Greeks, it's not enough just to know something. You have to live out that knowledge. Knowledge has to change who you are. You've got to live in accordance with whatever that truth is. So Paul says to the Ephesians, I want you to know, have wisdom of God, which isn't just that you know something about him, but you live according to that knowledge as well. But then he says, I also want you to have revelation. Another Greek word, the word apocalypsis. We get our word apocalyptic from. Apocalypsis is where we, we meet this primarily in the book of Revelation, which is the Greek word apocalypsis. For the Jews, they have a, an, another way of understanding truth, and that's the revealed truth of God. And so apocalyptic literature like Revelation is simply God trying to express to a per, people at a time, this is what is happening in the spiritual realm. You see the natural realm in front of you, but there's a spiritual realm going on behind this that you don't see. And so revelation is sort of, it's a metaphorical picture of the spiritual reality that is otherwise invisible, but let me paint it in kind of metaphorical terms to explain to you what God is actually doing behind the scenes. Now you can't get there through inquiry. You can't study that and come to that realization. Only God can reveal that. And so the way we know God isn't just through study and through understanding, but it's also God revealing him, himself to us. We need both. And Paul says, as a result of both of these working together, you would know him better. Not just to know about him, but you would know him personally because he would be revealing himself to you. He goes on in his prayer. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, Gnosis, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So Ephesus, one of the things you notice when you're reading through Acts is that Paul is traveling through Greece, Acts 16 through 17 and 18, and you know, there's some pretty cool stuff that happens there. Pretty, you know, it's great churches get planted and so forth. But what you notice is that in Acts 19, where Paul comes over to Ephesus, all of a sudden there's a greater sense of the supernatural. You get magicians coming and burning their scrolls. You, you get all, much more of a sense of demonic activity going on. And there's a reason for that. Ephesus was the capital of, of the region which is Asia Minor, which is modern-day Western Turkey. What that region was famous for was for magic. Now, everywhere in the ancient world, the whole ancient world was what we call an animistic 
culture, an animistic society. Think about sort of modern indigenous cultures that still have a strong sense of the spiritual, that there's spirits and ancestral spirits that are still at work and are still influencing our lives. And it's almost to the extent that there's a spirit under every rock and there's a spirit behind every tree. And it's the way you get through life is to somehow keep those spirits at bay, keep them happy somehow. Don't, don't offend them at the very least because they're going to make your life hell. That was really true of the ancient world, but particularly in a place like Ephesus. There was a great, greater sense of this spiritual realm that was going on. There, there was these spirits, what the Greeks called demons, all over the world and infecting and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And so the goal in life was to keep them obey, to, to not do anything that might cause them to harm us, because that's generally what those, what those spirits want to do. Now, one of the problems in that kind of culture is that if you become a Christian, the first thing you have to do is recognize that all of those things are false. Not that they don't exist, but they're actually demons. They're actually spirits of the enemy that are there to torment us. And in some cases, as in the cases of the gods, they're not actually real. Now we go, of course not, because we've got 2,000 years of monotheism and Western culture that says, no, of course we know that that stuff isn't real. But in that type of culture where you've been raised to be believing that every, under every rock is a demon trying to kill you, to suddenly then turn around and go, no, no, it's not real. What if it is real and I've just offended that spirit and it's going to come after me and kill me? Because now I'm worshipping Jesus Christ. That's a problem. And it's still a problem today ministering into indigenous cultures. You go into places like Papua New Guinea or where, where you've got this, this sense of this spiritual realm. The, for the Christians there, it's, it's always a struggle because what if we're wrong? What if this Jesus isn't who he says he is? And so there's this constant fear, this constant need, need for reassurance that Jesus is who he says he is. So Paul writes into that world and he says, guys, I pray that you would know that you would know that you would know who you are in Christ. That all of those things you've been brought up to be scared of, they're, they're nothing. They're powerless in comparison to Christ. He says, so I pray for this. I pray that you have a greater sense of hope, that your salvation is assured, that you don't have to keep all the demons happy in order to have salvation. Understanding that hope and being assured of that hope, because that will give you confidence. Paul says, I pray that you would understand the riches of the inheritance that you have, that you have everything that you need for this life. Everything that you could possibly need, God has made that available to you. But most importantly, he says, I pray that you would understand the incomparably great power that is at work in you because you are in Christ. That power that raised Christ and put him above all of these things you used to be afraid of. He is far above all of those things and you are there with him. And so you share that same power. I think for us as Christians, this is something we need to be continually reminded of because we are constantly afraid of our circumstances. Constantly. We're constantly afraid of what our finances are going to do to us or what our relationships are going to do to us. But if we just recognize where we are in Christ, we'd realize that he is more powerful than all of those things. And we are in him. And so, so much of what we're afraid of, it's not that it's real or that it's anything scary, but we are allowing ourselves to be over-oppressed by it. And it's not even that we are oppressed by it, we just forget who we are. 
understand the power that we have in him. Similar thing for the Philippians. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So as we know, Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians from prison. It's at the end of his life, he's writing from Rome. Now the thing about Paul, he'd had a good run of ministry. He'd done, I mean, the fact that we still talk about him today, we are here today because of Paul's work, right? He was, he was pretty good. He was very successful in what he did. And he was successful because he was free to travel through the Roman Empire, plant churches, preach, do everything that he did. But now he's in prison. Now, it would be very easy at that point to say, God, what are you doing? Are you kidding? Don't you know how important I am, God? Don't you know how important it is for me to be out there? Like, what have you got me stuck in a jail for? What is, what is this? God, did you go to sleep or something? Don't you know how important I am? But not Paul. Because Paul understood who he was in God. He understood God's plan for his life. In fact, he goes on in Philippians to talk about all these great things that are happening because he's in prison. Precisely because God has got him where he is. Now, how do you have that confidence unless you know your God and what his plan for your life is? unless you are assured that you're exactly where God wants you to be. And so he says to these Philippians, he says, I thank God every time I think about your partnership. Now, why he's saying this is because they've actually just sent him financial support. They've sent him money in order to pay for his expenses whilst he's in prison. Now, it would be easy again to say, well, hang on, Philippians. Like, you know, I appreciate the money, but come on, can't you send me a lawyer? Can't you send, you know, like a jailbreaker to get me out of here? Come on, like, I've got to be free. No, no, no. He knows exactly where he's supposed to be so that when he does get this provision, and provision that's only going to keep him there for longer, Paul says, thank you, because that's exactly what I needed right now. Because I know exactly where I am is exactly where God wants me to be. That brings confidence. So do we know who we are in God? Do we know that we are exactly where God wants us to be? Final point, final prayer. He goes on in verse nine and he says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, I need to introduce you one more Greek word. This is it, last one, I promise. This, this term here, depth of insight, it comes from a Greek word, asthesis. A-S-H-S-T-H-E-S-I-S, A-S-T-H-E-S-I-S. You get it. It's where we get our word aesthetics from. So aesthetics, aesthetics is a, a field of inquiry, particularly within art. And what it does is it asks the question, what is beautiful? What is beautiful and how can we prove it? See, the thing about beauty is that beauty is objectively impossible to prove. It's something you can only sense. 
So this, is, this word aesthesis literally means truth that's gained through the senses. And so you, you, you've heard the expression, um, you know, beauty is in the, in the eye of the beholder. What it's implying is that you can only know that something is beautiful through experience. And so I can say, I think that thing is beautiful. And somebody would say, no, I disagree with you. I don't think that's beautiful at all. Is one of us right and is one of us wrong? Or is it a case of both and? For me, it is beautiful. And so for me, truly, it is beautiful. But that, for, for that other person, truly, it's not beautiful. But both of those things are true at the same time. We'll put this into a modern context. We have this cultural divide that's happening right now in what this idea of what truth is. Now, I, full confession, I'm a huge fan of Ben Shapiro. I listen to his podcast every day. And, and one of his catchphrases is, facts don't care about your feelings. You might have heard that before. And what it is, it's a response to this idea that says, whatever is true for me is true. Whatever I feel to be true, well, then it must be true. And so the response to that is, this facts don't care about your feelings, is know that what truth is only what is objectively provable. Can you show me the facts that support that point to say that that actually is true? If you can't, then it's not true. And what we've got now is this divide. What is true? But the problem when you create a divide like that is that you make it either or, but it's not either or, it's actually both and. As an example, in, in a court case, imagine if the there was a defendant in court and they're on, on trial for murder. And somebody who was accused in them says, well, I can't prove that they're a murderer, but they feel like a murderer. They, 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 kind of, they, they look like a murderer, so they it must be true because it feels to me that they would be a murderer. Now, you couldn't imagine a judge in the world going, all right, well, that's enough for me. Guilty, off you go. Now, you've got to prove that. But conversely, I can say to you, I love my wife. And you go, well, prove it. Well, I can't really. I can tell you the things that I do for her and I can tell you the, the nature of our relationship. And you say, well, you could do that for anybody. That doesn't prove that you love your wife, but I know that I love my wife. I just know that I do. And for me, that's my truth. I love my wife. It's the same when we come to the things of God. Our walk with God is both a combination of knowledge, but also faith. See, I can step out and do something for God, something crazy, something radical. And I can't prove to you exactly why I need to be doing this. I can say to you, I know that my God's my provider. I know that God is my support. I know that God will work out all things for the good for those who love you. I can tell you all of those things are true. And I can tell you from my experience that that has been my experience with God. But that doesn't give me enough proof to say, I must therefore now go and step out into this. The only way that I know that I can step out in that is because of the faith that I have that that is what God has told me to do. And I can't objectively prove that. But I sense God, I sense in His Spirit that this is what He wants me to do. And so for me, that is now my truth. And so it's a case of both and. And so this is the reality of God. This is where I'm going to finish. Paul says, I pray that you would have a deeper knowledge of God. Not just a deeper knowledge of the facts about God, as, as important as all of that is, but that you would have a deeper knowledge of God Himself, the living, creative, loving, interactive God who wants the very best for you.
It's both and. So I guess my prayer throughout this season, as we go deeper into God, that we go deeper into the full knowledge of God. So that, as Paul says, we can live according to what is best. That we can live that life of righteousness that God has called us to live. Father, we pray right now that as we do dive deeper into you, that we wouldn't just come to a more reasoned understanding of who you are, but also that you would reveal yourself to us in a much deeper way. And that with both of those things at work, with that full depth of insight and that full knowledge of you, that we would then step out in your plan, in your will, to do exactly as you have called us to do, to live that life that you have destined for us right from the very beginning. So I pray that by your spirit, keep taking us deeper into you. And then wherever you want to take us from there. In your incredible name. Amen.